Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Adrian. And this is Scandal Sheets. Welcome to Scandal Sheets, the podcast that explores the scandals of the past along with the people and places associated with them. I am your host, Caroline. And I'm your co-host, Adrian. That is correct. (laughs) (laughs) I I gotta think of a better way to do that. Oh, one of these days we'll stop looking at each other after you do that (laughs) and like start, stop giggling like a bunch of goobers. One day. Yeah. So, uh, how's it going? Going pretty well. Guess what we're going to talk about today? William Randolph Hearst. Yep. He was not necessarily horribly scandalous. He had a few interesting and strange things that happened. Nothing on the level of creating sex clubs. No velvet swings in the Hearst Castle. uh, None of that, but uh, he, he had a few moments. But he's important because he basically was one of the two newspaper publishers that kind of got scandal popular I mean, he was very sensational who was the other one joseph pulitzer it was pulitzer yeah okay they they kind of pioneered not jay who's jay pulitzer I that's no what we we clue. talked about him last week we did with madison square garden because he was part of i'm sorry i lied you it was lied? carnegie carnegie hall oh yeah but it was another one of those guys of that same sort of time period yeah correct i feel so. like pulitzer's name came up but Maybe wrong. It may have. Yeah. But it's the same but same gilded age. This is all the Exactly. So the so yeah, he he kind of was one of the progenors progenators. That is make up a word. You're looking at me like I just made up a word. I don't know. Okay. I just know progeny. I don't know progenitor. Progenitor. Progenitor? I think it's a word. (laughs) Could be. There are lots of words. Look it up. Progenitor. P is P R O G E N I T O R. Oh, you're right. Yeah. In genealogy. Okay. Okay. This is just like cursory Wikipedia, whatever. How do we pronounce this? The progenitor. Progenitor. Is that it? Okay. Is the um, founder of a family, line of descent, clan, or tribe? Yeah. Noble house or people group. So we're we're, we're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna stick by progenitor. No progenitor progenitor there we go progenitor of do you want me to pull up that translator again oh, no, that we no, used no, no. so the... we know how to say it in chinese and danish and no because God, i decided fun. afterward we after we did that it was super creepy her voice is super creepy <laughs> it sounds like the voice in one of those weird spirit box it. things that they use on those paranormal investigation shows i don't watch those yeah you'll never want to use that translator again if you if you if you listen to it it's really weird okay so the progenitor of sensationalist sensationalism sensationalized journalism this okay. is gonna be a long episode man I yeah it is feel it. i did yep <laughs> uh it was william randolph hearst and okay. so we're are we gonna call him wr for short no, I usually just call him. I'm going or to William. in my part. Okay, I'm say WR because it's a lot easier it. than saying William, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a mouthful. Mm-hmm. So on that note, let's just jump in. Let's. 
William Randolph Hearst was born in San Francisco to George Hearst and his wife, Phoebe Apperson Hearst, on April 29, 1863. So we're coming up on his 145th birthday in a couple days here. Okay. You're like, okay. <laughs> I was just doing math. Okay. So William's father, George, was a mining engineer who had some pretty humble origins. His family was Irish Protestant, and they originally came through Charleston, South Carolina in the late 18th century, hmm. and then eventually settled in Abbeville, which is this tiny but adorable town in the sort of west central part of South Carolina. Hmm. And uh, they eventually migrated west, and George was born in a log cabin in Missouri. No way. Like any great frontier tale log cabin. Oh my gosh. So, he had a pretty poor early education, but made up for it by becoming involved. Wait, George or William? George's George. dad. Yeah, we're, we're still talking about George. Oh, okay. He had a really kind of sporadic early <laughs> education, and uh, he made up for it by getting involved in mining at a very early age and, event- you know, learning basically everything he could about the trade. What kind of mining? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I do know that he eventually decided that prospecting was actually better. So that was what he did. He moved that's to- trying to figure out where the ore is. Yeah, that's like, you know, getting in a river and like panning for stuff, I think. Oh. Or digging for like that or and or like when they have the pickaxes and they just kind of break into rocks and stuff. Yes. Searching for mineral deposits. Okay. Yeah. Experimental drilling. He moved to California fairly early on and made a decent living as a prospector and a general store owner. And he also had a farm and raised livestock as a side hustle. A side hustle. I like that. I've just I discovered that term and yeah. I love it. I'm going to start eating it all that the time. That should be a drink. <gasps> Ooh. That should have been this week's drink. It should have. He was one of the first to tap into the Comstock Lode, which mm. is or was a mm-hmm. silver mine near modern day Virginia City, Utah. He eventually made the modern-day equivalent of $2 million off of the Comstock load. Just one mining. Yeah. And then he moved on to another mine near Park City, Utah, and made roughly $12 million off that. Cool. Yeah. They have a mining museum. Really? Yes. I grew up skiing there. Oh, cool. And it's charming. This is, like, a long time ago before. It's a big deal. And they had a mining museum downtown, and it is very, it is really interesting, but yeah. extremely tragic how all that went down. And just the men, it's, I guess it's kind of the same with like a coal mine. You just send these people down these shafts and without real, obviously, safety, anything in place. And oh, they just, they had these diaries, like handwritten diaries from men and what they witnessed. And a lot of people suffered to make people like... Hearst, very, very, very wealthy. wealthy. So, William was born into an entirely different set of surroundings than his father in a city, San Francisco. Not in a log cabin. Of course, in the 1860s, San Francisco was really just getting started, so it wasn't like super, Mm -hmm. super populated yet. But his mother was also from Missouri. She was actually a distant cousin of his father, but we won't go there. Okay, not important. (laughs) She was a little bit better educated and cultured than his father. She'd actually speak French and play the piano. So she was definitely better suited to a higher end lifestyle. And um, one of the things I read about her said that she basically married him just to get the hell out of Missouri. So that's funny. I mean, there's a reason why they call it misery. Yeah. It's also the show me state, which I've never really understood Understood that either. I'm like, show "Show you what? what? (laughs) (laughs) There, I mean, there are some really beautiful parts of it. They are. My, uh, my... Like, the Ozarks are beautiful. Yeah, my step-aunt lives in 
the Ozarks. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty. Mm-hmm. So just it's just getting there that takes forever and is really boring. Indiana, Illinois, I'm looking at you mm-hmm. and all your cornfields. <laughs> so she was definitely suited towards a higher-end lifestyle. So she did hitch her wagon to the right guy on that one. William was the only uh, child uh, that they had together. And he was, was particularly close to his mother, who supervised his early education, which included a tour of Europe at the age of 10. Wow. Which was the same age that I went to England for the first oh, time. Oh, really? Yeah. I was a so, little bit older. So William was sent to New Hampshire for prep school and eventually enrolled in Harvard College. He was expelled after getting involved in a few pranks, which included sponsoring a massive beer party in Harvard Square. That's Good for him. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. And uh, he's also notorious for sending pudding pots filled with human excrement to his professors. That is not so cool. No, that's kind of gross. You, how do you? Col- okay. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Meanwhile, his parents relocated to Washington D.C. when George Hurst was elected a U.S. senator for oh. California. Mm-hmm. So Phoebe was in her element and excelled at entertaining important politicians and officials. William, on the other hand, headed, was headed back to California following his disgrace at Harvard. Mm. He had become interested in journalism uh, while he was in college, and he even ran the college paper while he was there. So he decided to apply his skills in the real world. In 1887, he talked his father into allowing him to manage the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, George Hurst owned this paper. Uh, he actually acquired it via a gambling debt that was owed to him. <laughs> It was a unique time in the media publication era. I bet. You had new printing presses that were allowing newspapers to actually print on both sides. Oh. Oh, they they were just one side? Yeah, for a while. For a long time, yeah. Hmm. And uh, so you were able to do that and... You were able to use a kind of a cheaper paper. You could produce them quicker. So the overall cost of newspapers was going down. So you were, you're getting like the first time, like working class masses were mm-hmm. able to read the paper mm-hmm. or afford to read the paper. And so William envisioned that his management of this paper was his first step to building, building a media empire. And he took it very seriously. He hired only the best writers and illustrators of the day, which included Samuel Clemens, Oh. Better known by Mark, Mark Twain. Twain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ambrose Bierce and Jack London. Wow. So Hearst was particularly interested in uncovering political corruption, so much of his paper was devoted to that pursuit. Now, in 1891, his father died after uh, serving two terms in the U.S. Senate. I think he'd actually just started his second term when he died. He left his $21 million fortune to his wife. Right. Yep. And that effectively made William completely reliant on his mother <laughs> for the rest of Good thing they her were life. Close. That's right. Uh, she was a doting parent. So he, at, when he asked her for the backing to acquire the New York Morning Journal in 1895, she mm-hmm. agreed. Mm-hmm. She fronted him $150,000 to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, he expanded the newspaper's offerings to both a morning and evening edition. And then he took on Joseph Pulitzer, who was the owner... Uh, primarily of the New York world. Now, the New York world was home to Nellie Bly, who was one of the first female newspaper reporters. She was actually pretty cool and out there and awesome. It was kind of one of the first to actually kind of go undercover to investigate things. Hmm. Um, And she kind of, she did a lot of really blockbuster pieces, including one that involved her checking into an insane asylum for several (gasps) days. What? Yeah. 
So Hearst acquired a stable of excellent writers as well, and even stole a few of the New York World's editors along the way. He set himself up as an excellent employer who paid better than average and actually gave credit to his writers with bylines. If you've ever looked at any historic newspapers, you will, you probably may or may not have noticed that, yeah, they did not put their their writers on there Mm -hmm. so i mean that would have been a pretty big deal to an aspiring journalist yeah and it's really impressive that he was good to his workers yeah somebody that right wealthy was willing to pay out right and and he was actually like where he stole some of those editors from the new york world it wasn't necessarily that he was willing to pay more but joseph pulcher was a bit of had a bit of a temper so he was just a better boss. Yeah, pretty much. He he was very lenient and tolerant. I mean, he apparently employed some pretty outrageous bohemian types and didn't care as long as they worked hard and produced what he needed them to produce. So, so the rivalry between Hearst New York Journal and Pulitzer's New York World came to a head during the Spanish-American War. And I know some of you are probably scratching your heads and thinking, which war was that again? Yeah. <laughs> um, short. It was most associated with future president teddy roosevelt Mm -hmm. rough riders yeah the rough riders exactly uh the war basically boiled down to spain's control of cuba and basically they had rebel forces of cubans who were trying to overthrow spanish rule right hearst was firmly in cuba's camp and did a great deal Hmm. to report on and to some extent sensationalize the rebels attempts to take the island back now, some people have suggested that the coverage of the conflict by both the world and the journal spur- spurred America's intervention in the rebellion. And to some extent, there was definitely a better informing of the public during this time period. As as I said, as working class people were finally able to, to afford newspapers. Mm-hmm. Both the journal and the world had some of the largest circulation numbers amongst that particular demographic. However, historians have largely discredited the idea that the Amer- you know, that we entered a war because of Media. two newspapers, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Hearst's name was blackened by many of his contemporaries, or I should say his enemies, yeah. who sought to blame him for America's entry into the war. In particular, Tammany Hall was set on discrediting, discrediting him because he had gone about discrediting them as being a political corrupt organization. So in response, the affiliates associated with Tammany Hall actually were quoted as saying, quote, he debauches the press, prostitutes writers to the service of his personal ambition and degrades and disgraces the profession of journalism. My. Yeah, that's pretty heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. So both the Journal and the World lost a ton of more money reporting on the Spanish-American War as they both sent correspondents to Cuba. But it was these losses that resu- resulted kind of like in a truce between the papers in 1898. Sure. And as I alluded to very inarticulately at the beginning of this podcast, the lasting term, I guess, that came out of this rivalry was known as yellow journalism, or mm. essentially this new sensationalized form of reporting. Hearst would be forever linked with this style of journalism, and to this day, a lot of people could probably easily liken him to an early Rupert Murdoch. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, in truth, Hearst was actually a very shy man. He was just good at self-promotion and huh. marketing. Okay. He was also a man of many contradictions. For example, he was an intense supporter of the Democratic Party, but later on, he was a major critic of the New Deal in the 1930s. 
He was also the friend of a com- of the common man, yet he lived a life of extravagance that eventually led to major amounts of debt. Now, in his personal life, he didn't really have one much of one initially. Apparently, he was a bit of a prude, but he did. It's kind of like, surprising. Yeah, he uh, he did like the chorus girls, like our uh, our, our good oh. friend Stanny. Uh, he was considered a stage door Johnny, which was a term for the men who kind of hung around backstage hoping yeah. to hook up yeah. with an actress. Now, when he was 34 years old, he began dating a 16-year-old chorus girl named Millicent Wilson. Oh, no. Now, that was my next thing. At least he didn't end up with a teenager. He uh, did. Yeah. Uh. So, uh, there was actually evidence that Millicent's mother ran a brothel protected by Tammany Hall. Oh, my. Which is kind of interesting since he, you know, had such disdain. Right. For, for them. That. Yeah. Now, despite her mother's dubious profession, William and Millicent's dates were chaperoned by her oldest sister, Anita, (laughs) and they would date for six years. That's a long time. That is. And they finally wed in 1903 when Millicent was 21 and Hearst was 40. (gasps) So apparently, Mama Hearst was not a happy camper because she thought Millicent was low class. Yeah, well... She wasn't not low class. Yeah. Now, William and Millicent Hurst would have five children, all boys. George Randolph was born in 1904. William Jr. was born in 1908. John Randolph was born in 1910. And finally, twins Randolph Apperson and David Whitmire were born in 1915. Mm. I have no clue why they deviated on that, using Randolph as the middle name. And then it's like they ran out of names. So I guess so. Let's name. Papperson was the mom. The mom's maiden name, yeah. I don't know where they got Whitmire from. That's kind of strange. Now, with the birth of so many grandchildren, Phoebe Hurst eventually came to accept Millicent. I guess. Uh Wow. So, Millicent was very close to all her sons, but like most women of her class, she was principally engaged in social events and philanthropy. Can't say that word. Philanthropy. Philanthropy philanthropy there we go <laughs> she was very involved with women's organizations during world war one she actually became well known for establishing the free milk fund for babies uh, in 1921 okay. and this organization would provide free milk to the poor of new york city for many decades oh. meanwhile hearst began to act on his political aspirations he was actually elected to the u.s house of representatives in 1903 uh, which was around the time that he married millicent uh, he served one term in the House, and by all accounts, he was actually uh, not very present <laughs> in Washington. But in 1904, he was popular enough to be considered for uh, the Democratic candidate for president. Really? Yeah. Oh. But he did not get enough votes, of course, okay. for the nomination. So he went on to run for New York City mayor. He came close to winning, but ultimately lost by 3,000 votes. So using the momentum from his campaign, he ran for governor the following year, but lost because he flip-flopped and began supporting Tammany Hall. So I just wanted to call him a flip-flopper. Yeah. That's an odd thing to flip-flop on. Right. I mean, that's a to be opposed to the Tammany Hall machine and then didn't they kind of say, hey, we, I like you now. Did they, didn't they eventually sort of reform towards the end? I want to say that they did. I thought so. Yeah, so maybe, maybe that was what it was. But by 1909, he was pretty much done with politics when he suffered a major defeat in another mayoral election. So with his political aspirations dashed, I guess he figured he could resume his enjoyment of the theater. <laughs> 
And yes, I mean actresses. <laughs> what kind of theater? Uh, the women in the theater. Yes, exactly. Uh, it was around uh, 1918 that Hearst met an up-and-coming actress named Marion Davies. Mm-hmm. Actually, she was already fairly well-known on Broadway. Uh, she was born in Brooklyn in 1897. Her real name was Marion Duras. Uh, her sister inspired her to pursue an acting career, but this only came after she graduated from school and worked as a model. So, basically, like, dear Evelyn from last week. Sounds like Evelyn. Did they know each other? Uh, nope. Different city. Yeah. Nope. Same nope, city. Same city. Well, Evelyn was somewhere else and they came to New York. Yeah. They would actually probably know. She was she was born in 1897, so this was after. Because Evelyn was breaking into modeling oh, and right. acting she, around 1900. Yeah, because yeah. White was murdered in to, um, 1906, 1906. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. So, Marianne worked her way up and was actually starring in the Ziegfeld Follies when she met William oh. Hurst. But around the same time, she'd also get involved in movies. So, she quickly proved herself a gifted comedian, which was important given that movies were still silent at this time. Oh. She became the most advertised actress in the world, and over the following 10 years, she would star in 29 films. Huh. She and Hearst would fall into an affair that would last for many decades. Uh, so in 19... Many decades. Yeah. Longer than one would think. Right. In 1919, Phoebe Hearst died and left William millions of dollars, which mm-hmm. he promptly began spending like there was no tomorrow. He set his family and his mistress up in lavish homes, but it was his creation of a palatial estate, San Simeon, <laughs> in California, that would break the bank. And when it came time to choose an architect, he decided on Julia Morgan, who was the first female architect to be licensed in the state of California. Yes. She, I, you know, I, when we started, we decided to do this, I kind of looked her up to see if she had any scandals. And no. She was pretty boring. She was very boring. But. She never married. Yeah. She. No children kept to herself. Right. Quiet. And, but I think it, it's some it's it would be considered somewhat scandalous to be an architect, female That's architect true. in this time period. So right. once again, not and necessarily to not marry and to not have be, kids. Right. right. So it's kind of the same idea with William Randolph Hearst, not necessarily scandalous doings, but just created scandal by being who they were. Adrian, do you wanna tell us a little bit about Julia? I would love to. So, female architects, how many can you name? And did you know who Julia Morgan was before this? I did, actually. Okay. But that's because I'm an architectural historian. Right. <laughs> Didn't know a lot about her. I just knew that she she did San Simeon, and I, I just always, I, that immediately, I think when I read that several years ago, immediately jumped out to me just because I'm always interested in sure. women's history. and. Um, But besides her, how many others do you know? Whether historically or oh, currently. Yeah, not not many. I'm thinking of like one, is it something Hadid? Yeah, Zaha Hadid yeah, Zaha passed Hadid. away recently. Yeah. So that's the one that I thought about. I was familiar with Julia Morgan, but besides her, it's really Ray Eames, Zaha Hadid, and Mary Coulter, who did a few buildings at the Grand Canyon. She did the, okay. the Watchtower and... Okay. Something else. And I honestly, I had to look her up because I didn't remember her name. I knew it was a female architect that did those structures. Those buildings, but, yeah. but yeah, I couldn't, I sadly couldn't come up with many. 
whether historically or you know, I never thought Currently. about it. You were completely correct. Yeah. I mean, I like to joke that architecture was obviously created by men, given some of the sure. uh, terminology, but you're right. I mean. Yeah. So, I really, um, it's, you know, she's she's a pretty interesting, talented lady. And, um, yeah, just not, not the first woman that came to mind, but uh, she, so not only did she work on the Hearst Castle for over 20 years. So she was in Hearst's employee for that long. And they actually got along really well. They, oh, they okay. Have, there's correspondence. And um, she she maintained a practice in San Francisco, which is 400 miles away, the whole time she was working on the Hearst Castle. Okay. Wow. And I think it's important to talk a little bit about what she looks like because it's surprising. Uh, so as someone who are you, I guess I would think one would maybe think that someone who could maintain this crazy work ethic, traveling back and forth between this job that took two decades and their own practice would be like a very, you know, big personality and, you know, strong person, physically strong. Um, but she, Julia was only five feet tall and a and hundred pounds. So she's this wee architect <laughs> no joke and obviously a total badass even though she's petite yeah. small but mighty right so she did while she was working on the Hearst castle she did ca which for those uninitiated is construction administration so she would show up to the Hearst castle and do construction admin in tailored suits and silk blouses so this incredible mansion at the top of a hill that's not easy to get to, and she travels to get there, and she would still show up, and there are pictures of her and just these beautiful outfits. So props to fashion. I want to go out and buy myself some <laughs> silk blouses. Well, I've climbed scaffolding in um, heels before, so it can be done. But yeah, Julia was great. She was born in San Francisco in 1872, so she and... W.R. had that in common. She was also very inspired by her native California. And the inspiration she drew from the state and also historical precedent that she drew from her um, education was the key to how she designed. She took cues from historic styles without being beholden to them. Her talent came from being able to balance historic vocabulary learned at the École de Beaux-Arts with client and site demands. Uh, she was also one of the first females. She was the first okay. to be admitted into the École yeah. in 1902. Yeah, 1902. And I'd, I'd like to think that her, I guess, kind of eclecticism came from being a, a West Coaster influenced by popular movements at the time that made it out there and stuff that she would have learned about in, in Europe, like the arts and crafts movement and, and William right. Morris, but also having an awareness of engineering principles and classical training. So there wasn't truly an architecture degree then, or you may correct me on that, but I do know that if you were an architect, you often had a a strong background in engineering because it was usually that kind of went hand in hand like architectural engineering right it wasn't just architecture yeah I, 
I see that a lot when I'm researching architects at work. They were engineers first. Yeah, they were all engineers. Or at least had the, that a lot more than an architect would now. And your alma mater, Clemson, that turned out a lot of, actually, a good yeah. majority of South Carolina's architects. Yeah. That they were all engineers. Right. So the arts and crafts movement emphasis that it put on finding local, using local materials, having a strong relationship to the site, and minimal and honest detailing really resonated with Julia. So she prioritized the needs and desires of her clients. She took pleasure in creating thoughtful details and design from the inside out. Basic elements like windows, walls, stairways, and fireplaces were carefully considered, and, and she often drew them at full scale to fully communicate her design intent. She was also quite adept at beautiful swimming pools, which we'll talk about later, whose designs went against her own modesty. I don't, I don't think she was rigid, but you wouldn't think by looking at her. She looked kind of like a librarian, you know, little glasses and had her right. hair sort of swept up and very, you know, buttoned down. That she would make these exotic, beautiful, colorful, light-filled swimming pools. And she was so good at um, knowing how to use natural light and color to emphasize the best features of of a house. So like I mentioned, she was schooled at the École de Beaux-Arts. She was the first woman ever admitted. And she arrived in Paris in 1898. And in 1902, she was granted a certificate. Now, she took more than one try to pass, but it was more because the jury did not want her to be admitted than the fact that she fell short, because she really didn't. The first time, I think she was 42nd out of however many hundred, and they would only take the top 30 or 35. But it was kind of... it, it, It was questionable that she... Even if she didn't quite make it on the first time, she probably should have on the second time and wasn't allowed. And the third time, they just really just didn't have a choice because she was like top of the class. And right, she yeah. even beat out some French French students. Yeah. So in nineteen 19- girl power, <laughs> exactly. In nineteen o two, she's thirty. Was granted a certificate. She actually stayed in Paris briefly to p- complete her first commission as an architect. She returned to the U.S. later that year, worked briefly in New York, but did not stay in the city long before taking the train back to Oakland. She could have worked in the University of California at Berkeley's New School of Architecture, but instead opened her own office in 1904 after passing the state's architecture exam. Again, as Caroline mentioned, she was the first woman to be licensed in the state of California as an architect. Her San Francisco practice along with most of the city, was destroyed in the Great Earthquake of 1906. A fun fact that... I really enjoy learning this one. So one of her one of her post-earthquake commissions was the Fairmont Hotel. Oh, and it's still there, right? It is still there. Okay, cool. Whose redesign was originally intended to be... Wait for it. Stanford White. Oh, Stanford White was supposed to design the Fairmont Hotel. And he died. Yes, who got shot. Yes. In 1906. That's right. So Julia Morgan oversaw the completion of the Fairmont Hotel redesign. Connections. Yep. We love connections. We totally love connections. The valuable library that Julia had amassed in Europe was actually housed at home, at her home in Oakland. And so it was spared the destruction of the earthquake, which was really good because she had a quite a library. 
By the following year, she had established her own office downtown San Francisco in a 1903 building designed by Daniel Burnham of Chicago fame. My fave! Which was so well engineered that it withstood the quake and it still stands today. Yep, that's that's Daniel Burnham for you. Mm -hmm. In Julia's 40 years of practice, she only carried another junior partner for six years. Otherwise, it was her name and only her name on the door. That's right. Over, the <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we're coming from really the uh, the peanut gallery over here. Yeah, we just are. barely missed well Women's History Month. We should have bumped this one up, but oh right, such is life. That's okay. Every month is Women's History it Month. Is. <laughs> so over over those forty years, Julia may have had only a fraction of her creations built. But those that were constructed were extremely diverse in use, from entertainment to ecclesiastical and everything in between. But it was definitely the, magnif magnif <laughs> <laughs> the magnificent Hearst Castle that took the majority of her time and is the most famous and recognizable in her body of work. There were overlapping projects, events, and circumstances that brought Julia and the Hearst family, specifically Phoebe Hearst, in contact. So Phoebe Hurst, as, as Caroline mentioned, was William Randolph's mom, and she, like Julia, was a total badass. The woman may have met at Berkeley when Julia was an undergrad, but they for sure would have crossed paths in Paris, which served as the headquarters for the competition to create a new campus for, for UC Berkeley, which the, the landscape was an Olmsted design, but they were still looking for architects to the design all the new campus structures. The the campus of Berkeley was designed by Olmsted. Wow. Did not know that. Julia was working on drawings for one of the buildings on campus, which Phoebe Hurst had commissioned. Phoebe also generously offered to supplement Julia's stipend at the École, which Julia refused. So all the students of the École de Beaux-Arts got $50 a month. And being the only woman, obviously, Julia is attracting attention. And being a fellow badass and someone who has the ability to support and dole out money to fellow woman naturally offers and Julia's like thanks I'm good <laughs> so anyway the two ladies worked together on a really sweet hacienda in northern California and that was the beginning of the Hearst Morgan relationship Phoebe's husband and William Randolph's dad, Senator George Hearst, recognized how awesome his wife was and left everything to her but not to their only son, William Randolph, who he considered to be a hopeless spendthrift. And, well, you know. <laughs> Which he kind of was. So, yeah, big, right. so Big Mama, Phoebe, died in 1919 at age 77. So, But Phoebe does not die before giving William Randolph a, a bunch of money that he builds his fortune with, and also money that he can pay his architect with, although that turns out to be a bit more of a challenge. William Randolph first approached Julia to build his California hilltop estate at San Simeon, which he sometimes referred to as the Enchanted Hill in 1919. On a geographical note, San Simeon is about halfway between LA and San Francisco and the hills above the Pacific. And I've been to San Simeon, but not Hearst Castle because it was closed when we got there. But it is like a fairy tale. It's the most beautiful country I've ever seen. Why was it closed? Like, we just got there at like 4.30. They, the, uh, the last tour had already left, and there's a gondola or something that'll, that takes you up. Seriously? And we just couldn't. Well, yeah, because it's like at the top of the hill, you don't drive. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. Uh, this okay. was in 1996, maybe. It was a long time ago. But man, was it It was a pretty, pretty place. That would be like pretty crushing. Yeah, I think at the time, 
I was disappointed, but not, you know, as a teenager, I liked uh, that kind of stuff, but I wasn't heartbroken because I didn't know a ton about it. And now if that same thing had happened now, I would find a place to stay the night in, <laughs> you know, close by so that I could get up the next morning and do it. But we had, you know, we had to keep going. And you would also be probably texting me bad words. I probably would. About. Yes. Lots of gifts. And yes. anger, angry gifts. Yes. Her still lived in New York. So, amazingly, a house of this magnitude was designed by written correspondence. Whoa. And, right, so Hearst Castle is giant. It's this main building. There's three guest cottages. There's a zoo. There's, it's, you know, it's fully landscaped. It's just, it's just everything about it is massive. And lots of coordination, lots of antique ordering, lots of antique storing, and just a lot, a lot to have to deal with over, you know, telegram and letters. So... William Randolph and Julia collaborated well and both loved the San Simeon project. It, I don't know how much she loved it when it continued on for and consumed her life for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. But she was certainly incredibly proud of the outcome. And so was William Randolph. Do you know an approximate number of her commissions that actually got built? I know that she designed more than 700 buildings, but I don't know how many. Wow. I, okay, it says, over the course of her 47-year career, Morgan designed upwards of 700 buildings. It just says, of which all but a small minority were built. No. She had a knack for swimming pools. But, um, and this is like, this is a super cool book. It's just called Julia Morgan Architect, and... Who's it by? Everything You Would Ever Want to Know. It's by Sarah Holmes Boutel. Okay. Head to your local library and pick it up. Yeah. For or sure. Your local or, or buy it and put yeah. it on your coffee table because right. it is not a small book. We're going to close things out today with that and join us next week for a personal tour through San Simeon, courtesy of Adrian. Yep. And then I will launch Caroline's it. flying me out there. I am, yeah. And I'm, I'm just charging it to the, the podcast credit card. We are, yep. That doesn't exist We're right now. We're going to expense it. Yeah. Yep. I wonder if I can write all this stuff off on my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about WR's later life and mm-hmm. some of the uh, potentially scandalous things he got up to. Until then, check us out online at scandalsheetspod.com. Please feel free to reach out to us. We always enjoy hearing about how wonderful we are. And we also... <laughs> it took you a minute, right? I did. Um, it's like skipped a beat. Oh, we do. You like us. You yeah, really do. Exactly. We want to hear We want to hear good things, but we're also open to constructive criticism sure. as well. And suggestions. As long as you give us five stars, we're okay with constructive criticism. Yes. I think that's a fairly uh, good bargain right mm-hmm. there. I think so. Uh, of course, if you have a scandal or scandalous person or, or uh, something of that nature that you would like covered, we are always open to suggestions. Yep. Adrian is currently on the hunt for a theater. So yep. if you know of one, please let us know. Oh, uh, the the big news I'm totally forgetting the important big news is that we are now available on iHeartRadio. So that's big big news. I, I feel like it is. You yes. guys, you don't just go on iHeartRadio. Like you have to apply. Caroline right. applied. I didn't know any of this. Yes, I applied and we got accepted. So we are now on iHeartRadio in addition to Apple Podcast. 
Stitcher and the TuneIn app. Basically, where we should be available ev- everywhere and hopefully Spotify soon as well. I have also applied to that. Oh, you have to apply to Spotify? You do. Wow. So uh, hopefully we will be coming there as well. We might be everywhere. Hey, we were also mentioned. Oh, yes. Uh, I'd like to give a, lo- a shout out to... <laughs> The lovely folks at Podcast Movement, they do a wonderful Facebook group for uh, podcasters, and they also put on probably one of the premier podcasting conferences. It's uh, coming up in Philadelphia this year, and I desperately want to go. In Philly. I've got to figure out where... The last weekend in July. Yeah. Maybe I need to sell a kidney so I can get up there because <laughs> I actually saw the lineup for the presenters and it's pretty amazing. That's really cool. But anyway, they they named us uh, amongst some of their uh, new podcast members for the month of April. So we really appreciate the shout out from them. Yep. Thank you. Go and give them some love on uh, Instagram and Facebook and all those fun things. Give us some love on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Scandal Sheets Pod. And um, come back next week, please. Yep. Gotta hear about the pools. Yes. Because pools are awesome. <laughs> it will be even awesome. Julie Morgan's pools are even awesome. Yes. I've seen photos now, uh, courtesy of this lovely t- coffee table book that we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is pretty spectacular. Yep. Um, I might even forget the fact that I need to lose 35 pounds before putting on my bathing suit (laughs) just to swim in that pool. So, yeah. So, catch us next week. Hope it stops raining. I know. We're going to get, like, deluge. Seriously. It's like a freaking tropical storm out there. It is. We needed the the rain, but we didn't need literally 16 hours of it. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to get home because uh, (laughs) if if, if any of you Charleston listeners know, we are notorious for flooding. Yep. I probably should have checked high tide to see when it was coming in. Yep. So I'm Caroline's going to float home now. Yes, I'm going to be swimming home. So hopefully you will hear from us next week. And until then, ta-ta for now. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.